Okay, so part five today, we're going to learn, uh, we're going to be going into chapter two today. So everything we've done, we've gone through chapter one, and um, I had meant to include day seven in our previous lesson, but I ran out of time. So uh, we still have to cover uh, day seven uh, of creation week. So we're going to talk today about the significance of day seven. We're going to talk about the fact that the seventh day was 24 hours long, just like the first six days, and not continuing forever. This is a, a new thing that's come up over the last, uh, say, 50 to 100 years where people try to say that the, the seventh day never ended, and we're still in the seventh day. And that's not so. It doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture, and we'll talk about why that is. Uh, we're also going to talk about another thing that's risen up recently, uh, claiming that Genesis chapter 2 is another creation story, a separate creation story, that we've got two stories of creation, one in Genesis 1 and one in Genesis 2, and that's not true either. And we'll talk about why that's not true, that it's not a second creation story. It's, uh, it's a kind of a zooming down into day 6 is what it is. Um, it's a more detailed description of day 6. There's kind of a transition in there in the first few verses of uh, chapter 2, and then there is uh, much, much more detail about day 6 than we had in, in Genesis chapter 1, because that's the important thing. Um, we see this pattern over and over again in Scripture, that Scripture will, will, will uh, give us a broad description of many things, and then it will focus down and give us details on what is important. And what is important is... God's redemption of mankind in Christ Jesus. And so uh, we get a broad description in many places, and I'll show this as we go through Genesis 1 to 11, where we, we follow um, Esau's line for about six verses, and then we focus on Isaac. Um, we, we follow um, the descendants of Japheth and the descendants of Ham, for three or four generations, and then we focus on the descendants of Shem all the way down to Christ Jesus. Uh, and that's a pattern of the scriptures, and we see that right away here in Genesis 1, and the whole, the whole creation story, Genesis 2, focused down on day 6 and the creation of man, and what happened after that. Uh, but first, let's do a little bit of review of what we learned last week. So last week we did day 6, the creation of mankind. Uh, and so the scripture that we did last time from 26 to 31 describes how God created man in his image um, and he blessed them and, and he gave them some commands right away. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he also gave the diet, first dietary law, behold I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth to both mankind and to the animals to eat. And he saw that, and then it was so, so we know that it actually happened that way. And then God sees everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So after day one, two, three, four, five, six, he says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. At the end of day six, when he's all done, he sees that it's very good. Uh, evening and morning, the sixth day. And so first we spent some time talking about what does it mean to be created in God's image. Uh, the Latin is imago Dei, you may hear that term, and it refers, of course, to the immaterial part of humanity because God is spirit. 
And so our image of God is in the spiritual realm, the immaterial part of human beings. Uh, and that likeness shows in our uh, mentally, morally, and socially. We talked about that. Uh, we're created as rational, volitional agents, just like God is. So we're similar to God. Of course, we're not identical to God. Uh, we're similar in some ways. And the ways we talked about last time were mentally, morally, and socially. And so, and you see this. You can see this clearly in everyday life. Every time a person invents something that shows creativity, and that's how we're. That's one of the ways we're like God. Um, in artwork, in, in uh, music, uh, we're, uh, all those sort of things that man is creative, that is proclaiming the fact that we're made in God's image. Then also morally, uh, we're created, uh, we were, Adam and Eve were created righteous and, and in innocence, and that's a reflection of God's holiness. Remember that men and women had been made, and then God said everything was very good. So men and women, as originally created, were very good, and that includes our righteousness and innocence. Um, there's some vestiges of that we see in the fact that we have a conscience. We have a moral compass. We know that how things ought to be. We have an internal uh, kind of compass that knows how things ought to be and, and actually convicts us in some cases, even unbelievers, convicts them when they do something wrong, makes them feel guilty. And then socially, uh, that's a reflection of the fellowship within the Trinity. Um, our primary fellowship, of course, with, his God, with God. But as we'll, we'll talk about in Genesis 2, um, God had said everything is good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then he said it's not good for the man to be alone. So that's the first time we see something's not good. And then, of course, in Genesis 2, as we'll talk about, God's talking about it's not good for the man to be alone. That's during day 6. Then he creates Eve, still during J6, and at the end of day 6, he says it's very good. And so only after he has created Eve, he says it's not good for the man to be alone. Then Eve's created. Then he says everything's very good. Did I see the, see the order of that? <clears throat> and we'll talk about that as we go along here. Um, and we see this, of course, in everyday in human interactions, social interactions. Uh, that's a, uh, a manifestation of the likeness of God. Um, and so then we had this quote from Francis Schaeffer who talked about the fact that uh, the phrase image of God is so important because men today, he's talking about the, uh, the average uh, unbeliever, um, can no longer answer the crucial question, who am I? Um, because of the, the naturalistic theories, the theory of evolution, goo to you via the zoo, that there's uh, there's no sense of who we are, there's no true sense of who we are, unless you understand the creation account in the Bible, the fact that we're made in God's image. And, uh, and the secular person these days um, that doesn't understand who they are as a person created in the image of God is unmoored from who they are. They don't truly understand who they are. Um, and so as a man, as a person like that, someone who doesn't understand they're created in the image of God, looks at the rest of the world, at machines and animals, he, he can't, he has no sense that he's different from these things because he doesn't understand the, the biblical creation account. But a Christian, on the other hand, does not have this problem. Uh, he knows who he is, that he's created in the image of God, created by God in the image of God. Okay, then we talked about the fact that people are different uh, qualitatively from the animals. We talk, we have language. Animals don't have language. 
Um, they can't speak or write in the true language. Uh, we can choose what we want to do. Animals do things by instinct, but we know what we ought to do. Uh, that back, goes back to the conscience. Uh, we comfort others in sorrow. Uh, animals don't do that. In other words, animals don't run first aid clinics and hospitals like people do. Uh, we cook meals. Animals are afraid of fire. Uh, we cultivate fields and plant. We invent complex things. Um, so, and finally, of course, God knew that there would be a time when uh, he would send his son into the world as a man, and he gave the first man, Adam, the sort of body in which the Lord Jesus Christ would one day appear. And so that's uh, the image of God. Then when he made people, of course, he gave this command. He gave them some uh, commands about what they ought to do. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. Uh, that's what I referred to as the creation mandate. So he made them, and then he gave them a mandate about what they're supposed to do. Gave them authority. So um, all authority, of course, rests with God, and he can if he chooses, delegate some of that authority in certain spheres, and he's done that. We'll talk about that more as we go along as well. He's delegated some of his authority to uh, husbands in a marriage. He's delegated some of his authorities to elders in the church. He's delegated some of his authority to civil leaders in uh, government. Uh, but all the authority ultimately is his, and we see this uh, very brightly stated, very clearly stated in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus says to his disciples right before he gives the Great Commission. So that's what he says first, and then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. But the, the, the setup for that great commission is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So that's the source of all authority. And so in this case, here in Genesis 1, God gives some of that authority over the rest of his creation uh, to mankind. Okay, uh, and then we talked about the dietary law, the fact that he gave plants not animals, plants, to eat for people. And then uh, eventually we'll get to Genesis chapter 9, and he changes the dietary laws. In Gen he refers back to this Genesis 1 passage and says, just like I gave you plants before, now I give you animals to eat. That's in Genesis chapter 9. Uh, so both people and animals originally only ate plants. And we know that that is definitely true because at the very end it says, and it was so. So God didn't just say this and then everybody ignored it. And it was so, the Bible tells us. So people and animals ate only plants. Uh, and so the focus, of course, uh, that we're, we're trying to get at in this course as we, as we fill in all this biblical knowledge is, uh, how does that set us up to have a biblical worldview, to understand how the world really is? And so uh, a worldview, everybody has a worldview, and everybody's worldview answers these questions. Who am I? Where do I come from? Who's in charge? How should I live my life? And what happens when I die? And so, so far, we've been focusing really on the first three. Who am I? I'm, and where do I come from? The origins and anthropology of, of mankind. And of course, the big answer is we're created in the image of God. And who's in charge? Of course, we get that all the way from the first verse, in the beginning, God. 
That's who's in charge, sovereign over everything. Uh, and if we have those things fixed correctly in our minds, that goes a long way uh, into to, to helping us be able to understand how the world really is. And so if you look at your, your, your regular, ordinary uh, American non-believer that you have as a neighbor or a co-worker or a friend or a family member, um, he does not have the correct answer to these questions. And because he doesn't have the correct answer to these questions, he's lost. He doesn't have the, a foundation. And in fact, in, in many cases, he doesn't have the foundation to understand the gospel. So if you presented the gospel to him, um, he, he, he's going to have questions that, that really go back to these kind of, the answers to these kind of questions because he, he doesn't have the right answers to these questions, and so he doesn't have the, the framework to be able to understand what you're saying to him when you tell him that, that Jesus died for our sin, his sins. What sin? Uh, why do I need to be saved from sin? So, and it all goes back to the answers we get to these questions, and the answers come uh, really in their best and most fundamental form in the early chapters of Genesis. So that's why we're doing this. Uh, so, yes, go ahead. Ministry to unreached people, saying that Joe was popular here. Never start with the gospel. For instance, one tribe, someone told me that they said that Jesus shed his blood. Well, we shed our blood. He was getting rid of his bad blood. But they start at creation. Uh, who is God? Who am I? And what does God require of me? Uh, that you don't present the gospel until the person has an understanding of how they stand before God. So anyway, yep. that's a good version. Yeah, no, that's, it's, that's it's, good. It's, it's exactly the, what you're talking about. Is that, that is how people think. And they have to have this right in order to receive the gospel. Yep. Yeah, very good. I have heard that in, in the past as well. That, that Right. Yep. Very good. Okay, uh, chapter 2. And so we're going to spend three weeks in chapter 2, uh, just like we spent three weeks in chapter 1. Uh, and I had, as I mentioned, I had intended to cover day 7 before, but there was just not time. So day 7 is what we're going to talk about today. Um, and then we're going to get into the details of God making Adam, God making a garden, putting Adam in the garden, putting Adam to work, and Adam doing things like naming the animals, and how could he possibly name the animals in just one day. Uh, we'll talk about that. Um, and then we'll talk about this, uh, it's not good for the man to be alone, the creation of Eve, and the institution of marriage um, in the third session on chapter 2. So, uh, the significance of day seven. So day seven is really part of the creation account. The, the creation account goes from one, Genesis 1-1 one, one, through Genesis 2-3. Uh, we have a chapter break there in our modern Bible. Uh, there were no chapters and verses in the original Bible. Uh, but the creation account really goes for, to verse three of chapter two. And because this is the first three verses talk about day seven. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. 
So that's the description of day seven. Um, And so day seven is the close of creation week, and it's different from the uh, the first six days, in that there's no creation going on that, that day. He's resting. Um, and we get a kind of summary of that in Exodus chapter 20. And so Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments, if you remember, were written by the finger of God on tablets, given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he brought these tablets down. And Moses later wrote the book of Genesis, and so ex- these words in Exodus 20 were actually written by the finger of God and written before Moses had written down Genesis. Um, so he wrote Genesis sometime later during the 40-year the, the 40, 40 wandering in the wilderness before they went into, um, into the promised land. But these words were actually written first. Um, remember the Sabbath, to keep it, the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we've got a description of the creation week. Six days he made the heavens and the earth, all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. That's exactly what we read in Genesis 1, that all this happened on seven days. Um, and we have a, a ref, referring back to that, the creation event, of course, happened um, uh, at the beginning, the beginning of time, space, matter, and energy. And now we're at Mount Sinai uh, a few thousand years later. And God is saying that the the week that the Israelites are supposed to have, pattern of six days of work and one day of rest, uh, was established by the creation week by God. And so this idea of a seven-day week, uh, did you ever wonder why? Why seven days? Um, And why is it like that for everyone? Not just in Christian societies, Muslim societies and Hindu societies and and every culture that we've ever had in all the history of the world that we know of has always had a seven-day week. Where does that come from? It's not a natural, it doesn't come from nature. Uh, We could have a more natural number like a number of our fingers and toes would be 10 or we have 12 months a year, we could have 12 days in a week, Uh, we have... um, there are 365 days in a year. We could divide it up into fives and make 73 weeks. Why is it seven? Um, our usual time markers, days, months, and years, all have astronomical basis that we can observe in the universe. So a day, the Earth goes around once on its axis, and that's a day. So there's a physical, astronomical reason for a day to be that long. Um, the months are are the are roughly the the moon cycles, the lunar cycles. We have some of our months are 29 and 31, 30 days, but it's roughly the new moon cycle that it was that it's based on. And a year, of course, is the Earth orbiting once around the sun. Uh, the seasons are defined by the equinoxes and the solstices that are due to the tilt of the Earth uh, towards the sun. 
But a week, there's no, there's no physical analogy for the week. There's no astronomical, there's no physical reason for their, the week to be seven days long. So where did it come from? Well, of course, it came from creation week. That's where it comes from. And isn't it interesting that that week is the same for everyone? Um, and so practically speaking, uh, this is why every human is really pre-wired or predisposed to a seven-day week, and it just doesn't work any other way. And the best example is during the French Revolution in 1793, the French wanted to get rid of any vestiges of religion. And they knew that this seven-day week came from the Bible. It was because of creation week. So the French government, the, the, the radical new French government, decided to get rid of the seven-day week. And they instituted, by government fiat, a 10-day week in revolutionary France uh, as part of the French revolutionary calendar. And it was a total disaster. It didn't work. Uh, there were many, many problems. You can, you can read about it, actually. There were, there were lots of problems. Um, but um, the ordinary French workers were required to work nine days before getting a day off. Um, and inevitably, that led to severe overworking and also severe depression. There was depression throughout France because they tried to do this 10-day work week. So remember that the next time you're tempted to complain about the long work week that you have, that the, the French tried to make it 10 days long, and uh, big disaster, because God has really pre-wired us to fit um, what his creation has, uh, has done. So it's a, um, it's, it's a gift, really, that the Lord gave us to give us a seven-day week, uh, because our bo- that's what our bodies are fit to, and it doesn't work if we try to do it any other way. Um, then there's also a spiritual dimension uh, to the seventh day rest. And so the, the primary passage, of, there's other passages, but Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, talk about the Sabbath rest in a spiritual context. This is a spiritual context. Um, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also... But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith to those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, so his creation works are finished from the foundation of the world, the author of Hebrews says, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, so and they went into the land of Canaan, If they had gotten the final rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, 
so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So this passage is talking about Sabbath rest as a spiritual analogy, an analogy of coming to faith in Christ and therefore finding spiritual rest in the Lord. Um, And so John MacArthur in his commentary on this section of Scripture says, the rest promised to those who believe is my rest, God says, that's God's rest, God's own rest from his work of creation and the rest that he gives us in Christ are not the rest brought on by weariness or the rest of inactivity, but are the rest of finished work. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. God has finished his work. God has done it all. And for anyone who wants to enter into his finished work and to share in his rest, it is available by faith. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 says. When God had finished the creation, he said, briefly paraphrasing Genesis 2, it's done, I've made a wonderful world for men and women, I've given them everything earthly they need, including each other, for a complete and beautiful and satisfying life. Even more importantly, they have perfect, unbroken, unmarred fellowship with me. I can now rest, and they can rest in me. And so this is a spiritual analogy of God's rest and applied to coming to faith in Christ and, and resting in, in the Lord because you've come to faith in Christ. Uh, so that's what it's talking about in, in Hebrews chapter 4. Hey, Ralph. Yes, go ahead. Uh, commentary question. Sure. Do you uh, know if certain uh, Christians, theologists, the ones that kind of think that the Lord created everything and then just kind of let it in motion and is not active in a daily basis use that Hebrews uh, uh, Hebrews 4 verse 4 and God rested on the seventh day from all his works meaning like once he started yeah. resting he was like I'm done yeah. and it's all in motion do you know if they use that verse? so probably yeah so uh, he's talking about deism so deism is the um, it was very popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s it was the idea that yes God created everything but as soon as he created everything he stepped back and he's been uninvolved in his creation since then. And yes, I'm sure they, they try to use that Hebrew passage in that way. Uh, now, there's other passages of Scripture where Jesus says, I and my Father are always at work. So what do you do with that? I and my Father are always at work. Um, so what's he, what's, how do we reconcile these passages? Well, in one case, we're talking about work of creation. And I think it's pretty clear in that Hebrews passage I just read to you that he was talking about creation and using it as an analogy for spiritual rest. But the, the rest that he's talking about is rest from creative work, and we have other passages of Scripture that tell us that God is at work in other ways, uh, that he is, in, in fact, involved, uh, especially in the idea of redemption of mankind. Um, so, yes, especially if you encounter that sort of thing, I would definitely go to the passage where Jesus says, I and my Father are always at work. Uh, because if we believe that the Scripture is true, then we have to see that both of those passages are true, and we need to come to an interpretation that allows both of those passages to be true. And the way we do that is we say that God finished from his creative work, and, and I think that's pretty clear, really, from the Hebrews passage and from Genesis. But that doesn't mean he hasn't done all kinds of other work since then, where the work of redemption most clearly in all the rest of Scripture. We have God 
right there, very involved with his people. Uh, you see that all throughout the scriptures, that he's, he's right there, and he's going before his people in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He's right there. He's splitting the Red Sea. He's, he's doing miracle after miracle. Uh, he's very involved. And so to take one passage of scripture, Hebrews 4.4, 4, and say that that invalidates all these other hundreds of passages that show that God is intimately involved with the redemption work for his people is to, um, to, to conduct, is, is to interpret uh, scripture in a way that it would certainly never have been understood when it was written and is a, uh, a poor way to interpret any, any book and scripture included, but if you, if you were to read any book and you would read two passages that seem to contradict, you always go back and think, well, what did the author mean about this and about that? Because I, I'm, I just assume that the author's not trying to contradict himself. Uh, but you see, when people, uh, people engage in eisegesis, they have this idea that they want to read into Scripture they will often seize upon one passage and then ignore lots of other passages that, that don't match up or don't comport with the idea that they're trying to read into Scripture. And I think it's the same with the deists when they seize on Hebrews 4.4, 4, for example. Good point. Um, so, um, going back to um, the significance of the seventh day, and so if we look, if we start from God's Word, the entire counsel of God's Word, we see that the seven-day week was created for our physical and spiritual benefit uh, to have a dedicated day of rest and also a dedicated day of worship. Um, although as Christians, we should be worshiping the Lord every day of the week. But more importantly, as the writer of Hebrew puts it, the ultimate rest for God's people is provided only through Jesus Christ, who is our eternal Sabbath rest. So the one who offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin and sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished, as we see in John 19, is reigning today from his throne, making all his enemies a footstool for his feet, as we see in Hebrews chapter 10. And so this is the spiritual analogy from a physical reality. Um, and then the second thing that we want to say about the seventh day, not only is it um, um, an ordinary 24-hour day, uh, but it's also, uh, not, not only is it significant because it's a rest, um, and that Sabbath rest has a, uh, both a physical and spiritual component, it's also an ordinary 24-hour day, and it's not continuing forever. Um, I, I hear this crop up from time to time, and I think it confuses people a little bit. Uh, so it should be noted that God is not still working on the seventh day. So when we get to the seventh day, he has already finished. He did all of his creative work on six days, and he rested on the seventh. So he's not still working on that day. Uh, he had finished his work prior. So the seventh day was not a day of creation, but a day of rest. It's creation week, six days of creation, one day of rest. So it's different. It's fundamentally different from all the other days. It's not a day of creation. It's a day of rest. He had finished all his work, referred to everything in heaven and earth being completed, we see in Genesis 1. Two one, so we get certain verbs there in uh, Genesis two one to three that that show us that it's different from the other days. Finished, rested, blessed, uh, indicating the uniqueness of that seventh day. 
The fact that the, the day seven, like the other days, is numbered is evidence that it's a 24-hour day. So um, we talked about when we, we talked about the structure of these seven days of creation week. Um, this, the first six days have this um, evening and morning, but all of them are numbered. And so uh, we can look at other places in Scripture other than Genesis 1 where there's a day with a number, and every single case, there's a day and a number, it's clear from the context that it's a 24-hour day outside of Genesis 1. Uh, and then every time there's an evening and every time there's a morning, it's also an ordinary day. But for days 1 through 6, we have both a number and we have evening and morning. Day 7, we don't have evening and morning, but we still have a number. And every other place in Scripture outside of Genesis 1 where you have day and a number, it's a numbered day, and it's always 24 hours. Um, yes? Yep. You're not saying that day 7 text doesn't say and so and we're going to talk about why the text doesn't say that's what i'm going to do next is there's a reason why the text doesn't say that there's an evening and morning there obviously was an evening and a morning there's an evening and morning every single day uh but the, it doesn't have to say that and, and there's a couple of reasons why it doesn't say that so there, there has arisen uh, groups within the modern church that say it's not a 24-hour day because it doesn't, have the, it doesn't specifically say evening and morning there. But I think that misunderstands the use of that phrase throughout creation week, the other six days. In each of the six days, there's a particular structure, and none of that structure is listed on day seven. So the structure for the days of creation... While God's creating, it starts with God said something, let there be something, there was something, God saw that it was good. That's, and then there, then there was evening and morning. So that structure, all five of those things, is in days one through six. Um, then in day seven, and that's because there's creation events going on those days. And so he's the, the Holy Spirit is describing the creation events using this particular structure for each of the days one through six. But day seven, there is no creation going on. And so none of these things is present in day seven because there's no creation going on. That's the structure used for uh, describing what happened, what particularly happened on day one, what particularly happened on day two and day three, and day four. And none of that has happened. There's no creation going on in day seven, so you don't have any of that. Uh, day seven is not a day of creation, but a day of rest. It's not necessary to use any of that structure for creation, including uh, the day, evening, and morning at the end. That phrase was used in day one through six as a rhetorical function to mark the transition from concluding one day to the following day. Just so to mark off, the fact that all the creation stuff for day one was done, evening and morning, and then we start into the creation day for the, for the next day. But think about it. That's not necessary for day seven because there was no creation stuff going on in day seven. So none of that stuff was necessary. Um, so it's not only evening and morning that's absent from day seven, but all the other parts of the, that formula as well. Uh, it's used to describe God's work of creation. It's not used on the seventh day because God had already finished creating and he wasn't doing any creating on that day seven. Furthermore, there's no reason to have that break, the terminator phrase, 
uh, on the seventh day because in Genesis 2-4 we have a toledot. We have a, already a natural break to show that Genesis 2-4 is a new section of scripture. There's a toledot there. So there's no reason to use the, the kind of break transition that has done for day one to two, day two to three, day three to four, so on. From day seven to the next section of scripture, there's a toledot there. So no reason to use that evening and morning break. And so it all makes very much sense if you're reading it as a, a straightforward account of creation. Now, um, people that want to add millions of years to scripture or to allegorize this whole section of scripture have seized on this idea that there's no evening and morning, therefore day seven goes on forever as a, as a mechanism for allegorizing all of this portion of Scripture. Uh, and it, I don't think it makes sense. It doesn't fit uh, with the narrative. Um, so, um, the seventh day does not, so the seventh, it, it, a seventh day that goes on forever would also make a mockery of Exodus 20. Um, so if you look at Exodus 20, Exodus 20 tells us six days you shall labor and do all your work. Seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Think about that pattern. And think about what it means if the seventh day of creation is going on forever. So the six days is supposed to six days of work and a seventh of rest is supposed to be a pattern. If in fact the seventh day is not a day but it goes on forever then this passage would be teaching an eternal weekend. You would do six days of work, and then you're done. The seventh day goes on forever. Lay around, and don't, don't, there's ne- Monday never comes. I mean, that idea is nice, but that's ridiculous. So interpreting Scripture that way doesn't fit with another passage of Scripture. It makes a mockery. It, it, it makes nonsense out of that pattern in Exodus chapter 20. It has to be an ordinary day. The seventh day needs to be an ordinary day for it to make any sense um, for God to speak in Exodus 20 about six days of work and a day of rest if, in fact, the seventh day in creation week goes on and on and on and on forever. Okay, uh, I think you get the point. So, uh, as I mentioned, that there's a Toledot, so there's a whole Toledot structure of Genesis. Toledot means essentially what came forth from. Um, and most of the Toledots are attached to a person. So what came forth from a person, it's usually translated, these are the generations of, or these are the descendants of. Adam, for example, Genesis 5, uh, starts the, gen- the uh, genealogy from Adam to Noah, and so it's what came forth from Adam, the descendants of Adam, the generations of Adam, and so forth. Noah, Noah's sons, Shem. But the very first Toledot is attached to the heavens and the earth, not a person. So it's what came forth from the heavens and the earth. So what came forth out of this creation thing? What happened? And most of our English translations use the word account. They translate Toledot as account. What's the, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Uh, but remember that that word toledot essentially means what came forth from. And so it's what came forth from the heavens and the earth. So what's the result? What is God doing 
with this heavens and the earth. And so in Genesis 2, we see what he's doing. What is, what is he really doing with this heavens and the earth? Well, he's made man and women after his own image. He's planting a garden. He's putting them in the garden. He's putting them to work. Um, he's, he's given them him some commands to do, and he's given them some commands to not do certain things, as we'll see. And so he's set him up with um, some moral choices uh, to obey or not to obey. And we'll, so we'll see how that works out. But, uh, but that's, so that's what the, the, the account in Scripture tells us. It gives us this broad account of, day, uh, of the creation. And then it necks down or it zooms down in on, oh, so what is the whole point of God making this heaven and earth? Uh, so it's the Toledot of heaven and earth that starts in Genesis 2, verse 4. Okay, uh, Genesis 2, not another creation account. This is another um, modern, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that I guess you can understand, but it's, it seems silly to me uh, to, try to try to make Genesis 2 into another creation account. Um, and... and you know, why did nobody see this for the first uh, 4,000 years everybody was reading the Bible? Um, so Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 provides us with a chronological account of what God did on each of the days of creation week. We just talked about day 7, that's Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So days 1 through 7, we get a chronological account, very bare bones, not a lot of detail. This is the, the broad sweep of what happened in creation week in order, chronological order. Day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This is what happened. Just laying it out. And then Genesis 2, 4 to 25, the rest of Genesis chapter 2, zooms in on day 6 and shows some of the events of that day. A lot more detail. So in Genesis 1, for example, we get God created men and women in his image. That's it. In Genesis chapter 2, we get a lot more details about how God did that. He made Adam from the dust in the ground. He breathed into his nostrils and uh, the breath of life, and he became a living being. And then he took a rib out of Adam and made Eve. And none of that stuff's in Genesis chapter 1. All it says is he made men and women. So Genesis 2 is giving us a lot more detail about what's important. And that's exactly how the Scripture does it all the way through. It gives us a broad description of, uh, in, in, with no details of, of a great variety of things. And then it gives details about what's important. Um, and that pattern all the way throughout Scripture starts right here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, so we're going to talk about that in great detail, uh, not today, but in the next two weeks. Um, so we, let's take a look at what happened on day 6 in broad, uh, broad strokes. So um, in answer to people who say, no, Genesis 2 looks like another creation account. Uh, let's just take a look at what it says. So um, Genesis 2 has Adam created. It has the Garden of Eden created. It has a description of the river system in Eden. Uh, it has Adam put into the garden and given instructions to tend it. Uh, it has Adam naming the, some of the kinds of an animals, not all the animals, of course. God, uh, there's no indication that God had a whale come flopping out of the ocean and wriggle on the ground up to Adam and to be named. There's no indication, so none of the fish are mentioned. There's no indication that he had the creeping things come to him, like all the insects. So it, we'll read that in great detail, but I'm just telling you that it's only some of the kind of animals that, that uh, the Bible says that Adam named on day six, not all of them. 
Uh, no sea creatures and no creeping things. Um, then he creates Eve, and then there's a description of Adam and Eve and marriage. Um, and so that's the order of things in Genesis chapter 2. Adam, Garden of Eden, rivers. Adam put into the garden, given instruction, naming things, creating Eve, description of Adam and Eve in marriage. And that's great detail about creating people that was not in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we hear that God made man and women in his image. That's it. Genesis chapter 2, we get all these details about what God did on day 6. It's not another creation account. Um, And here's why. So, one of the primary ways that people that, that, that try to say that it's a separate creation account the way that one of the reasons they point to is that the order of creation of man, animals, and trees seems to be contrary to the order stated in Genesis 1. So, for example, Genesis 2-7 describes the creation of man. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's Genesis 2-7. And then Genesis 2-9 mentions God creating some trees, including the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 2-9 says, Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 2.19, there's the mention of creation of certain land animals. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So it looks like creation's out of order. You got a man, then you got trees, then you got animals. What's going on here? Uh, it looks like it's out of order. Uh, at first glance, it appears to be a contradiction between Genesis 1. Um, has the animals and trees created prior to the creation of man? So what's going on here? The issues can be resolved by understanding the original language, Hebrew, and the translation process. So the Hebrew word for formed in both Genesis 2.7 and and 2.19 is yatsar. Uh, The NESB, which was what I was just quoting uh, the slide before, translates that verb in its perfect form. So it's regular past tense, uh, formed. So to form past tense formed um, Hebrew verbs don't have the, the, the way you determine what a uh, uh, what tense the Hebrew verb in is by the context it's not there's no separate letters there that tell you whether it should be past tense or not it, it's by the context that you know um, and so the words are the, the word is exactly the same for at forming Adam and for forming the animals however the Hebrew word can be translated in what's called the pluperfect form, and that's the had-been form, had-formed. It's exactly the same word, and the only way you know is by looking at the context. So the exact same word can be translated formed or had-formed without any change in the Hebrew, only looking at the context. And so in this case, that would read that God had formed these creatures sometime in the past. Before, he's talking about what Adam did to name them. Um, And other English translations actually translate it that way. The ESV and the NIV, for example, translated it in the pluperfect, had formed. The Hebrew is exactly the same, whether you performed and had formed. So you have to look at the context. ESV and NIV 
translated head formed. So the, the NIV for 2.19 says, Now the Lord head formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So head formed on day six previously. Then he makes Adam. Then he brings the animals to Adam to name them. So there's no problem with order if you translate that word yatsar as head formed. And the, remember, the only way you know is from context. But the context of Genesis 1 tells us that the animals were definitely formed before Adam. And so I think the NIV and the ESV have got it right, uh, that it should be translated head formed. And if you translate it head formed, then the whole sequence makes perfect sense. Uh, the rendering eliminates any problem with chronology because it refers to what God had already done prior in the creation week. And uh, as a one a additional element of evidence that this is the correct way to translate it, uh, William Tyndall was the very first person to translate an English Bible. So before there was a King James Version, William Tyndall translated the Bible into English directly from the original languages, and he translated that verb there in that place in the pluperfect form. He translated, God had made of the earth all the manner of beasts and then brought them to Adam. And so the, the, only, the only reason that this becomes an issue is because there are certain English translations, particularly the King James and the NASB, that translated as the Lord God made and leaves it ambiguous. And there, here comes uh, these armchair theologians to say, oh, it looks like uh, Genesis 2 is in conflict with Genesis 1, therefore two different creation accounts. Uh, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. If you read the whole context, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, it makes perfect sense to say God had made these beasts and then he brought them to Adam. Okay, um, so that's, I think, um, a, an answer to those who would try to read Genesis other than as a straightforward account of the creation week in Genesis 1, and then a zooming in to day 6. And so why would God do it this way? So the Holy Spirit gives us a broad overview of the entire creation in Genesis 1 one to two three and he proclaims it very good that's what we get at the very end of the creation so why is it this way why is it why is there this pivot from genesis 1 1 to genesis 2 so the primary reason of course is the bible is not a book about the cosmos or the earth um, as wonderful and fascinating as those things are the bible that's not the focus of the bible uh, the Bible is a book about God and man, and man's relationship to God is creation, and God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so once he's set the stage by giving this bare-bones description of creation in order, uh, it's time to pivot to the theme of the book. Right? And the theme of the book is God and man, relationship between God and man as creator, uh, God as creator. And that's exactly what we get in Genesis chapter 2. We get a real focus on the relationship between God and man. So the primary purpose then of both Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 is to lay the foundation for the gospel. 
to explain how it is that the Lord's world, the world of the good and loving God that he says is very good, how is it that in spite of that fact, when I look around at the world today, evil exists and man endures pain and troubles and calamity? Why is that? Well, Genesis 2 and 3 describe why that is. Why is it that we, we start with this very good creation? Genesis 1, uh, 31 tells me everything's very good. God's finished his creation. It's very good. Well, why is it then that I look around and I see such misery? That doesn't sound very good to me. How did that happen? Well, Genesis 2 and 3 is going to describe in detail how that happened. How did we get from there to here? Um, and that's important, uh, important for us to look at in great detail. So uh, the author assumes, of course, that we've just read Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 when we get to Genesis 2-4. Uh, remember, the original Bible doesn't have chapters, doesn't have verses. It's just a com- continuous narrative. And so um, the, the, the author, does, he, he, he's writing this continuously. The Holy Spirit has this all laid out. He he assumes we've got it all fixed in our mind that we've had this creation from day one to day seven, six days of creation, one day of rest. We know the order of of things that were done. And then we get to Genesis chapter two, and it's not like we just forgot all that. Um, We know we have that as a background, the order that he made everything. And now he's going to give details about what he did with man, particularly what he did with man and particularly what he did on day six. Is what we're going to get. Um, okay, so um, I finished a little bit early because I wanted to give time for questions. So um, I, I actually went through this lesson. I took a lot of stuff out because I didn't want to run right up to our our time. Um, so significance of day seven. Seventh day is not continuing forever. It's a regular day. Genesis chapter 2 is not another creation story. It's a zooming down into day 6. Does anybody have any questions? Has anybody had anybody come to them and say, well, the Bible contradicts itself because Genesis 1 doesn't match Genesis 2? Yeah. I don't know. I have a question, but maybe others can comment. You can comment. Is when looking to evangelize or share the gospel... Somehow I feel that uh, a person that has a a belief in a false religion, or at least has that starting point of they acknowledge they were created or there's a creator, it seems like it's a little bit less of a hurdle to evangelize to them because at least, okay, at least I know this person has a correct understanding that we just didn't come out of nothing. So at least it's like one less step to the step over. Now is the, let's get you on the right track. It's the, the type of thing that I kind of feel it's there, but maybe it's just a false feeling. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think there's goods and bads to that. There, one is that they've got a background that there is a, a God or creator out there. The other is that they've already got uh, fixed in their mind some false notion of who this God is. So if you drill down into... Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, they've got some false idea um, almost always about Christ, who Jesus is. Um, so, you know, the Mormon, uh, the, the, the uh, 
Muslims say that he was just another prophet. They have their list of prophets, and Jesus is one of them. Um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say he's not God. Um, the the Mormons um, have a an, an I they've kind of added Joseph Smith into the mix, um, who takes away much of the glory of Christ um, in in the person of Joseph Smith, who gets a direct revelation from the angel of Moroni, um, and everybody gets to have their own planet, uh, but gets to be essentially a god of their own planet, uh, makes Satan the brother of Christ uh, the in Mormon uh, uh, theology. Uh, so there's always some issue with who Jesus is in all these other false religions. And so, and that's an, that's a, an obstacle to get over. Now, on the, on the positive side, yeah, they have an idea that there's a creator out there and that they're created by somebody. Uh, but they have this false notion of who Christ is, and you've got to get over that. So there's goods and bads, I think, to, to uh, addressing somebody that has a religious background. Now, in the United States of America, up till about 100 years ago, um, there was a broad consensus in the culture that there was a God and that we were created by God. And there was also kind of, a, it wasn't deep, but there was a wide um, knowledge of the Bible, the basics of the Bible. Well, these days, that's gone from American culture. Um, and so you really do need to start from the beginning. Um, there's, not, there's no understanding in most people of who they are as somebody that's created in the image of God. And it, it used to be, broadly in Western culture until 100 years ago, that, um, that you might be able to assume that most of the people that you were talking to had some basic understanding of who they were and who God was, but not anymore. Now you, got, you really have to start at the foundational level. Yes. Just one quick question, because I was not aware of the, the second and third kind of claims by some people, whether the seventh day was not 25, you know, continuing forever day or the, another creation story. I was not aware of that. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming it has to do with the, in some Christian circle trying to make it kind of palatable to um, the evolutionary theory. I'm yes. It, yeah. So here's how the story goes. The, the story is that um, we can't read the creation account in the Bible as straightforward historical narrative because of these two things. One is Genesis 2 doesn't match with Genesis 1, therefore it's a second creation account, therefore the whole thing must be, in at least some way, it has to be allegory. It can't be just a straightforward historical narrative because we can see Genesis 2 doesn't match Genesis 1, therefore that's our our excuse, in the way I see it, to not read Genesis 1 as a historical narrative. And then the 24-hour day is used in the same, uh, the, the, the never-ending day 7 is used in the same way. Um, if day 7, as we can see, because there's no evening and morning, day 7 goes on forever. If day 7 goes on forever, then we can't read day one through six as historical narrative because day seven in the biblical account in Genesis one or Genesis two obviously goes on forever because there's no evening and day. Therefore, since that one goes on forever, then we should read then the others as not 
ordinary 24-hour days also. That's the, that's the line of reasoning that I hear, particularly from William Lane Craig. Uh, he thinks that's an open-and-shut, slam-dunk case, that it's, a, that it's all allegory, is that there's no, seventh, there's no evening and morning on the seventh day. Um, yes? Even if you think it goes on forever, then what significance does that have? Except a, more of a mechanistic type world, but God is still, he's yeah. still work. I mean, yeah. like yeah. this, or what yeah. is it thinking there? So, um, what they, they make a big deal out of the fact that we're still in the seventh day. That today we're living in day seven of the creation week. That you hear them say that over and over again. Right now, today, you're living in the seventh day of creation week. And, and if, you're, if you're living in the seventh day of creation week, well, that, that's a huge time span for a day. And so, therefore, since we know that that's true, then there must be huge time spans for these other days as well. Uh, so it's a way to make a day uh, into a huge time span. And so usually that's the hook that I hear from people that uh, support this view is that, do you know you're living in the seventh day of creation week right now? That's usually how it, it, it will be started. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, that's, if, you, if you look at the model that God set up, Exodus 20, um, yeah, that would imply that we should be resting continuously and doing no work. Because we're in day seven, and God said on day seven, you don't do any work. So why are you going to work on Monday? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, a very common occurrence. And it's not, it's not only lose your job, it's lose um, the respect and admiration of secularists. So, for example, William Lane Craig, he's not going to lose his job as a theologian um, because the if if the if the secular world ridiculed him he wouldn't lose his job um, but he would lose their respect and admiration and so it's this um, it's the tendency that we all have to want to be man pleasers and not God pleasers that's a we, we have to every single one of us has to be careful about that 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 can manifest itself in our lives each and every one of us in many different ways. And, and many of the people that, um, that support and promote this view are public intellectuals. They're Christians who are public intellectuals. And they are susceptible to peer pressure, I think what they consider peer pressure, of other public intellectuals who are not Christians. They, they care what those people think, what other people that are in their academic circles, not Christians, but also academics. Um, and they know that if they said in public that they believe the scriptural account as written, that it's you know a six-day creation 6,000 years ago, that they will be ridiculed, mercilessly ridiculed, by people that they respect, who are academics, who are atheists. Yeah, so you're right. So we, we can't know what's in the heart of another person. Um, and so, yeah, there could be people that have totally different motivations that, than the one we just, we just talked about. 
but you're correct that the bottom line is we need to properly divine the word of truth, properly handle God's word. And we need to do that without reading in man's ideas. For whatever reason, somebody may read man's ideas into scripture, we need to avoid doing that. We need to identify it when we do it. We need to be careful in our own reading the scripture that we don't do that for any yeah so, yeah, so that's, uh, that's the spiritual aspect of rest. So uh, there's two aspects. There's a physical aspect and a spiritual aspect. And so spiritually, yes, I think you can, uh, you can see it that way. You can use that as a, as a good analogy for how things were in the Garden of Eden. There was spiritual rest. Now, Adam was told to tend the garden. So physical work was part of the created order for Adam and Eve uh, from the beginning, before the fall, there was physical work. He was supposed to tend the garden. And we'll talk about the Hebrew words that are used there next week. Uh, but he was given work to do. But there was spiritual rest. The kind of rest that we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, yeah, that existed in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the Lord before the fall. So, yeah, I think that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. All right, uh, we've run out of time. Let me close this with prayer. Dear